So this whole project of how-to, this podcast I've been doing, is in my opinion an evolution of radio. Just like how you don't quite tune in anymore to television shows, you stream them on demand, the analogy holds true for radio and podcasts. So if you're not listening to a live radio broadcast, it might as well be a podcast. As a matter of fact, many live radio shows these days are also available as podcasts. Now if we compare newspaper and radio, two pillars of media during the 20th century, unlike print media, radio seems to be doing just fine. A recent study done in the U.S. showed that 89% of people over the age of 12 had listened to the radio during the past week. Perhaps the biggest change is that more and more of these people are tuning in online instead of through an actual transmitter. For this same group of Americans polled, that 89%, 60% of them had listened to the radio online. And, as always, if you're looking for breaking news, live coverage for sports or different events, of course, radio is still your go-to. But as you'd expect, sometimes the line does get blurry between the two mediums of radio and podcasts. Usually with radio personalities starting up a podcast at some point, rather than the opposite. Why is that? Well, just about anyone with an idea, an internet connection, and a cell phone can start a podcast, which does make for some diverse listening. But to be on a radio show, there's at least a few more steps involved. But it turns out that in decades past, the criteria for getting a job in radio wasn't quite so stringent. And my next guest, Don Connolly, would be the first to admit this. And that getting a job in radio today just isn't the same as it was 45 years ago. Regardless of this fact, there's few people in Nova Scotia, let alone Canada, with more radio hosting and interviewing experience than Don Connolly. You see, Don has worked in radio for basically his entire adult life. 42 of those years with the CBC on Information Morning, starting in 1976. That amounts to something like 70,000 interviews. And if you need some context with that number, I, uh, I've done 11 now. Don's interviewed countless politicians, bantered with rock stars, and has gotten to know the maritime provinces, particularly Nova Scotia and the people who live here, on a level that few can compete with. Don grew up in Bathurst, New Brunswick, where the family business and obvious career choice was in construction though it seems like that path just wasn't meant to be. But if you're listening to this episode, there's a good chance that you might have already known some of that stuff. However, if you've ever wondered how someone can keep the same job for 42 years and not go crazy, or what it's like to hold a position that comes with a giant figurative megaphone, keep listening, because this is Mike Syme with How To Be A Radio Interviewer. Well, uh, Don, thank you so much for having me here in your kitchen and taking the time to speak with me today. You're very welcome, Michael. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it means a lot to me. And as, as I was saying to you earlier, uh, it's a little different preparing to talk to you for a number of reasons. But number one uh, was, again, just this little Google search that I do to familiarize myself with who I'm talking to. And I thought before I did that, I knew what you did. You know, I thought it was relatively simple. I think, you know, radio on the surface is simple. But there's so many different ways you can look at it. Are you providing information? Or are you entertaining? Are you simply company for people, you know, when they turn on the radio in their homes? And so in, in your opinion, what 
was it that you were paid to do over the last 40 years of your life? At the heart of it, probably, when I was hired in the first instance, I was hired what they called, there were five people in the show. Uh, there was a main host, uh, a weather person who, in fact, had a big uh, part of the show. There was a sports guy and a newsreader. And the fifth person on the show was called the journalist, which is not a term that I'm particularly comfortable with. We could talk about that later, maybe. But <clears throat> the journalist on that show was essentially the interviewer. But at the core of it... Um, I was an interviewer. So, but for you, though, uh, was one of these things more important to you than the others to either inform, to entertain, or to keep company? Yes, I, I think that if you, uh, that program, I think the, the terminology has probably changed somewhat, but the differentiation and in the information component of CBC Radio was largely divided uh, into what's called news and current affairs. The news were the newscasts as such. Current affairs programs, as the name implies, deals with issues uh, of interest and concern to people in the community that you serve so that um, it was important to sort of be company, to entertain, but those were secondary uh, to informing. An entertaining interview, an interview with an author, can be informative, but I always thought that the interviews which dealt with issues of significant impact on the community you served was sort of job one. So those interviews which in fact had that kind of content were the ones which I thought were most important. That was the, it seemed to me that was the job of the program. And as for the first 11 years, as the interviewer, only filling in as a host when Don Tremaine was away, um, that was As one, one of Don Connolly's major career influencers, the name Don Tremaine will come up again. Trigger, as he was sometimes known, was the generation of radio just preceding Don Connolly. In his own right, Don Tremaine had an impactful career at the CBC in Halifax from 1952 through to his retirement in 1987. The two Dons had a 11-year working relationship together from 1976 to 1987. When Don Tremaine was away, um, that was job one. You can inform at the same time as you can sort of uh, entertain and be good company. You can do all three. If you're listening to a good, solid interview with somebody, whether it's in a podcast situation or in a radio situation, you can be entertained and, and amused while you're being informed. But at the end of the day, the, the important component from my point of view was that if you were a regular listener to CBC Radio, that's just isolated. The show I worked on, this would apply across the board. But if you listen to that program on a regular basis uh, over the course of a period of time, you would be, I think, more informed about your community, you'd be able to make better decisions possibly about how you voted, the kinds of causes you supported, the kinds of issues that you thought were important. How did the actual interview process get structured uh, when you were working on Information Morning? You're, you're given a prepared... Uh, script in a sense. And the script would include an introduction and there's a series of suggested questions and usually a couple of pages of background. Well, you read the background first in a sense. The introduction should give you a direction as to what you're going to be talking about and a, a place to start. But let's say there's five, there's eight questions written down. There are situations in which in certain shows run in a different way than I've ever worked where the person who produced the item, who lined up Mike Sonnen as a guest, 
would sit in the control room and suggest after the first answer, ask question number three. That never worked for me. In those days, the show was on from six to nine. And I used to say, and I can remember one particular producer, and I said, look, from nine o'clock until six o'clock. You know, we can have all kinds of conversations about this. But once we're on the radio and it's live, you gotta, you got to trust me. And the reality is that in most instances, particularly after a decade or so, I knew more about interviewing than anybody else around me. And so what you're trying to do, in a sense, is that you're trying to say, okay, when you read the notes and say, okay, this is about X. So how can I get the guest to provide me with a beginning and a middle and an end to that? What's, that's, how can I create that arc? Of the interview types that might not live up to expectations or maybe a little bit trickier to conduct, I would kind of assume that politicians fall into that camp. So besides just election time, though, you must have been speaking to politicians all the time. On issues, as opposed to just the... And the reality is that although I rate them as very important, they were uh, more often than not unsatisfying. They were characterized by message tracking, obfuscation, and evasion. So, you know, in some respects, you'd say, well, that went well because it was obvious that candidate Y was not answering my question. And not answering the question is a way of answering a question. You know, so, and in many cases, I'll give you an example. So, Michael, you know, did you or did you not at that meeting suggest that the Cogswell interchange is a bad idea. And I said, no, the Cogswell interchange, Michael. Yeah. Is it a good or a bad idea? It's, well, you don't really, that's something we're looking at. So depending upon the seriousness of it and the level of evasion, you might even ask that same question a third time. And if the third time doesn't answer, you have to assume that people who care about it one way or the other have already heard that this person is unprepared yeah. to answer that question. And you have to be satisfied with that. Because I think that there are different uh, media cultures. You know, there, there, there are people, and, and you could make a list as long as the list I could make, of people who actually made a living by being confrontational. And, pe- and, and that's what people tune in to listen to. They, they want that spark. That's what they want from it. That was never my interpretation of the audience we had. Now, there were instances of fairly spirited back and forth with people in and out of the political sphere, but they... I always thought that in this culture that we operate in, which is essentially Atlantic Canadian Nova Scotian, that particularly with elected officials, you may not have voted for the mayor, but he's your mayor. And to some extent, you have got to sort of respect the office as opposed to just the individual, which to some extent informed my uh, take on how far, how far you could push, how hard you could be. To some extent, too, though, important to remember context here in that um, this is your podcast. So people are going to be listening to your podcast because they have found something in either the the general approach you have or the topics you've chosen or the way you go about the interviews that they find attractive. It is your baby. I mean, it, it, you are not responding. You're not beholden to anybody. You have no editors. There are no restrictions in terms of the institutional rules. You have to decide for yourself, to get back to the very first question you posed, how much you want to inform, how much you want to entertain, how much you want to amuse. Uh, but th- those are all in your control. If you work for a company like a national broadcaster, there are institutional expectations, and there are expectations within the program itself, and limitations would come with that. 
What about the constant shuffle of guests with different backgrounds and stories from science to politics? Was that ever something that was tiring to you or something that kept you going and something that was exciting? No, absolutely a plus in the job. I am by disposition, and, and I was as a child, uh, a generalist. You know, I've never really had a great particular passion for an individual narrow field. But you look at the subject matter of most radio programs, they're right in the wheelhouse of a generalist. You know, like I, I would have some basic working knowledge of just about any subject that came up. You know, uh, nothing exists in a vacuum. So, like, there's hardly ever going to be an interview which is going to be about something I had never heard about. It's so you don't have to give me, like, six pages of Wikipedia. You pick up and you retain a certain amount of that by just doing the job. Would you have considered yourself a generalist before you started your career in radio? When I look back and I look at, in my house growing up, speaks to you the, being a generalist, in Bathurst when I would have been arbitrarily in my early teens, there was no TV. The local radio station might have started and would have had like no real newsroom as such. But in my house and in my grandparents' house and my aunts and uncles, my grandparents had the Montreal Star delivered every day, big, thick, Montreal star. It was expected in that household that you kind of knew not only what's going on in the backyard, but that you have a broader view. It's pre-TV, but in both my grandparents' house and in our house, a big telefunk and radio with a wire which ran outside that you could you could dial up everywhere. You know, and there was the expectation that you'd be informed about things in your life. I remember so clearly that listening in my parents' living room when Fidel Castro uh, marched his army into Havana, because it's something we had followed. The worm changed a little bit about what Cuba turned out to be. We could talk about that at a different point. But the idea that a ragtag bunch of guys went into the mountains and eventually won that civil war, it was romantic, it was dramatic, and it seemed like a really, really good thing. And, and the, the, the international broadcast, probably a BBC broadcast picked up by the CBC that I was listening to, was riveting. So... Like I wasn't in any way, shape, or form consciously preparing myself to do what I ended up doing, but accidentally in the process of just living in the household I did and developing those sort of um, attitudes and those, that sense of curiosity. And I, and I think I had a natural curiosity. I mean, I, you know, it was not like, well, I'm sure I, I learned some of it to impress my father you know, or my mother or the other adults in my life. But a lot of it was I was a naturally curious person. And, and I think that's something that in the long haul, up to and including now, I'm still a curious guy. You know, that's a really helpful attribute in doing what I did for a living. With all these things, it kind of seems pretty obvious. I mean, you had a passion and respect for radio storytelling as a kid. You seemed destined for a career in radio. It's so much easier to see that looking backwards. When I was, when I started university... There was a clear path. I was going to uh, go to St. Evex, find a nice Catholic girl to marry, go to law school, go home and take over the family business. And, and sometime around the age 20, uh, that was no longer the case. Then he said, what are you going to do? Well, first I'm going to finish at St. Evex. Okay, okay, then all of a sudden you're going to a C minus BA and you're not going to law school. You're not getting in with this C minus anyway. But I ended up working in a mine. And I ended up, after that, coming back into your graduate school. 
but I worked in the mine because I needed a job. I went to grad school to get the fuck out of the mines. You know, like I did, like I had no desire to do that. So they finish uh, at grad school, and I'm going like, uh, now what? The bank manager who lent me the money to go to grad school says, uh, when are you going to start to pay us back the money? I said, as soon as I get a job. I, and he said, well, they're starting a newspaper down the street called Bathurst Tribune. He said, you've got an English degree. You've got at least four years of college newspapers. You've worked three or four months for another weekly. Just go talk to them. Well, it's a small town. You've got to go talk to them because the bank manager is also my father's bank manager. And it's, you can't not go. So I went down and I got that job. But that was sort of my first real sort of paying job. So at the end of a period of time, um, probably after just about a year, the newspaper, uh, the people who were actually editing it basically laid off myself and one of the other writers temporarily till they could sort out the money. And did a little freelancing, did some freelance photography. And again, this is, we're not, this is not career planning here. Like, I, I have no plan. I'm not even asking myself the question, much less coming up with an answer. And then one morning, as the manager of the radio station calls up, he said his um, morning news guy was going to join the CBC in Moncton. He needed a guy for four weeks while he found somebody with radio news experience. I said, Neil, I hardly know what the radio station is. I never had anything to do with the campus radio station when I was Andy Kanish. I just don't know anything about that. He said, you have an English degree. You just worked for the uh, Tribune for a while. I know for a fact that you worked for the Zaverian Weekly for those years, plus a little job at the Port Hawkesbury Sun. He knows me, so he, don't, he knows I have a reasonable speaking voice. He said, 100 bucks a week for four weeks. Not wild about the job, but it was a job, you know. And subsequent to that, I was offered a job at CHMS because Don B put in a good word for me to basically work the news shift from 4 to 12 uh, at CHNS. And the reason I took that job was, if you're in your early 20s in Bathurst at that time, not many girls around, honest to God, I mean, it was, it was kind of, no, but I really, you know, the young women who I've gone to school with were either married or off at university, or like there wasn't a, there wasn't a pool of my friends still there. But I had a pool of friends here in Halifax. So I came here because my friends were here. So it wasn't... Uh... How much of it, if any, was um, you were thinking to yourself, I kind of like this this type of gig, and it, I can do more with it in Halifax? No. Nothing? Zero. That's incredible. Zero. <laughs> and, and that was probably the last time I could absolutely say that. Yeah. And it, in, in retrospect, it, it was kind of a crappy job. I mean, it, it really was, you know, you're reading the evening newscast, but you're also preparing some material for guys in the morning, and it's still midnight, and, you know. Uh, so that was part of it. But... Um, after I had been there for a year, uh, my friend Jim Munson, uh, who was working for a, a small private top 40 radio station in Ottawa, called up. He said, this is a job up here. And it was basically, it was my first job really as an interviewer. There was more to it than that. But the primary thing was that you were going to be doing interviewing and editing material for this radio station. Was that exciting for you, this prospect of moving to Ottawa for a job? Ottawa? I'm interested in politics. Um, I, this job is a daytime job. You're not working in the middle of the night. Um, there, I knew some people in Ottawa. I said, you know, that, that might be worth a shot, you know. And uh, so I went up there, but <clears throat> it wasn't. It wasn't because this is another step, you know, in a career that might lead somewhere. Even vaguely, it wasn't like 
I can make a career out of this. I'm not just sure what channel to take. That wasn't it. I was getting out of Dodge. It was just a change, you know, and <clears throat> I was there for just about two years, almost exactly two years. After the first year and change, I didn't like Ottawa. So I started to look for work elsewhere. And I basically contacted anybody I knew. And I interviewed for a variety of different jobs. But I'm going like, eh, there's nothing very much. Until I heard through Alex Walling, who's still a friend of mine here. Because he's one of the guys I called. He said, they're looking for an interviewer for this program, the CBC in Halifax. Interestingly enough, I'd also put the word out through some people I knew in Toronto. And having had no luck for like six months getting a job which you would have taken, that I would have left the job I had in Ottawa for, within a matter of 48 hours, I had two job offers. Chum in Toronto, and the job as the interviewer for Information Morning in Halifax. Now, if you were a guy with a plan, if you were a guy who thought he was going to make a career in radio or broadcasting or show business, you're taking that chum job every single solitary time. The money was about equal, but the opportunities were chum, which was, at that stage of the game, the most popular radio station in this country and amongst the most influential. And, the, and going through chum presented opportunities. But that wasn't the, that wasn't the fact. It was, I looked at it going, well, you know, in Halifax, like, um, my friends are here. Another lifestyle choice. Well, more than anything else, you know. There were times after I'd been here for a couple of years, by the time I was 30-ish, where I would occasionally go, you know what? I could go back to law school and go back to Conley Construction, or I could just go back to Conley Construction. I, I had spent a lot of time working on job sites as a kid, didn't really need a lot of degree, although it would have been very helpful. You know, I could call up the old man and say, look, bring me into the office, give me a couple of years, see if I can make myself useful. Um, but that would have been to get away from the the situation I was in. It wasn't because all of a sudden I woke up and said, I've rediscovered my great enthusiasm for construction. I could have made more money for sure. If I had been at any point along the thing, going to made my money, I would have gone home to work for the old man, for, for the company, because it would have been great opportunities to make a fair amount of money. So at no point, let me make sure I'm trying, at no point that I can think of did I ever make a significant decision in terms of what I did on the basis of just the money. You know. So at this point, after you decided to move back to Halifax uh, to take this job on Information Morning and you decided to stay again to not pursue construction back in your hometown, at that point, was radio still just a job? There were things in the job I liked a lot. I liked the interviewing. There was a lot of stuff, like the stuff, the stuff that I enjoyed, covering elections, getting out on the road to do town halls, the occasional road trip. I like the opportunity to, we talked earlier on, about learning new things and meeting new people, and things I liked. Well, that was part of the job, so there were very attractive parts of that job. In 1988, when Don Tremaine retired, you know, I became the primary host. And because I was in the one chair, you had a little more control. So at this point in the 80s, where you were the host in the one chair, did you start to feel like you were beginning to mesh with the role? Well... In 1983, I got married. In 1985, 1987, 1989, and 1991, I had four kids. So I've often said 
that from when my, our second child, Molly, was born until Dirt of the Baby started school. That's roughly a decade. I have no idea what happened. There was no decision-making going on there. It was a case of try not to let any of the kids die of starvation or get sunburned to death on your watch. Try not to be so tired at work that you don't completely humiliate yourself. It kind of circles back a bit, too. You're not rethinking it now. You're making sure that the rent got paid, mortgage, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, in, in a way which was transformative. You know, I had a wife who had children, one in March and three in April, and went back to work after Labor Day. And all four cases, I had to learn. I grew up in a house where my mother stayed home, and she had help. And the boys didn't have to make their own sandwiches, and the girls didn't have to shovel the driveway. If you're married to Maureen Coffey, there's a whole new set of rules, cowboy. I'm the eldest of seven. I never changed a diaper until Kathleen was born, but I've changed a lot of diapers since. So that was a whole other outside experience. But after that, you know, once the kids are a little older and kind of somewhat self-sustained, and by that time, then I'm even more senior, then I even have a little more say in the show. So it sounds like you went into a bit of a time machine, getting you 10 years into the future at this point when your kids weren't quite as reliant. Like during that time, during this 10-year period, you weren't actively and consciously pushing ahead your career? No, and, and I mean, think, but I think it, it's not like you have a plan that you're following, or, or, but it was de facto, you were learning, I mean, in that decade, um, you theoretically, I hope, were getting, getting better at live interviews. You were doing some other things. You were, you know, having a little more, a more, uh, a more sophisticated understanding of uh, the program. The program went through a major change. Uh, uh, it went from a local Halifax Dartmouth show to a provincial show during that period of time, which made it more interesting rather than less interesting. And so, even though it was a very difficult period with the children being number one and Maureen being number two and the job being number three. Uh, nonetheless, I'm still going to work. I'm still working full-time, and, and I'm still learning something and, and in some ways getting better at it and having a better understanding both of the, the individual program itself and the audience who listens to it because we do the road trips and you meet people. Uh, so in, in many respects, when that period of time ended, you know, like I say around 2000 in the early, you know, the early aughts, if you will, from then on, you know, it, it, I'm not thinking about career change at that stage of the game, obviously. But I mean, by that time, I, I, I had embraced it more, I liked it more, and, and because you have, it's like any other job, the degree to which you feel you have, I was going to say control, that's not fair, where you have input, you have, you have genuine input. So I think that it, it's probably not wrong to say that the last 15 years I enjoyed significantly more than I did any other part. And the f- closer we got to the end, the better time I had. Can you tell me more about this 10-year period where you weren't quite operating on all cylinders when you had uh, a lot of small children at home? How did the nature of your job impact your family life? Or how did your family life impact the nature of your job? Well, I think in in some respects, I mean, the fact that I was never there to see the kids off to school, it impacted in a fair, my, our family life. I mean, um, it was funny because it, it sort of turned out to be like Maureen got them all off to school, what, 99% of the time because I was 
their work when that was going on. Uh, the work, because of the hours, impacted on how we ran our family, you know, how we organized our family. Um, was I, during that 10-year period I described earlier on, between uh, Molly's birth and Deirdre starting a Tower Road school, were there times when I was not as sharp as I should be at work because Molly and Kathleen had the whooping cough, which was true, and it was just the most exhausting part of an exhausting part of my life. So, I mean, did that have some impact on that? Almost certainly. Um, but, and, and it, it's sort of predictable to say this, but I mean, I was a guy who grew up as the eldest of seven, and I always thought that I, would, I wanted more children than my parents. I mean, I, I really did. Um, and four kind of counts as a big family now, but it was always something which was a huge priority for me personally. Uh, Early on, you knew you wanted a family. Oh, I knew from when I was a small child that I would, I would have, I would have liked to have a bigger family than I have. Um, although, in, in retrospect, four, four seems plenty now. But um, so it was never like if there was ever any kind of choice to me that was never really difficult for me because I mean. As we talked about this at some length, I mean, it wasn't like I was a driven guy looking to advance a career and I really was driven to do all. I wasn't, you know, and I was way more, way more interested in my children than I was in, you know, upping my profile working for CBC. I mean, with all the, with all the seniority you gained while at the CBC, you must have been offered promotions from time to time, like was producer the next logical step oh i was off i was asked please or or to become executive producer or but or, just no interest no way zero done. so okay so if you turn that down i imagine if people saw that there's a bit more onus on you to respect the position of producer like you can't be the interviewer in title but the producer in spirit i, I think that largely depends like most other positions like it kind of that wouldn't matter what you what job you'd be hired for. So, okay, theoretically, you're going to be hired uh, uh, as the chief financial officer for this little uh, new uh, startup company, Michael. And you get in there, and you realize within a couple of months, you're really having to do some human resources stuff here as well. Because you know, like, it's, there's a job description on paper, and then there's the job. There's a part of of this which is harder to talk about because it's it's um, so ephemeral in a way. But one of the reasons why um, that the last 10 years, by the way, from 60 to 70, you know, I was was no kid. I was, but in that last decade, with a little more control, uh, not complete control, nobody does, the producer does, like you have, it's a collaborative kind of thing. But the satisfaction you got from going on the road trips and talking to people and Beginning to appreciate in the last 10 years something which I had less connection to in the first 32 was the degree to which the information you provided, the company you provided, was important in the lives of people in, in a way which is really hard to talk about because it regularly run into people who you would never have met until that moment who know the names of your children, know your wife's name, you know, and and you know, have a pretty good idea of you as an individual because you can do certain kinds of shows um, and adopt a persona. But doing daily shows, 
dealing with a whole lot of different people in different situations and doing Hurricane One and doing White One and doing the Swiss Air Disaster, the degree to which people have relied upon you for information, you know, and, and the degree to which your presence in their lives has affected their lives, you realize that it, you had these relationships which were, in a sense, tremendously one-sided, uh, but really important to individuals. And it was hard not to take some satisfaction from that. Would your day-to-day, your personal life, ever be affected by this job you had in radio? Like the type of interactions you have with strangers or friends? When I was mentioning earlier on about the way in which people have connected to and kind of know about you kind of personally, they feel they know you in a way. I'll, I'll use an analogy that I mentioned earlier on talking about interview techniques by friend Jim Nunn. I knew from St. For the record, Jim Nunn is a longtime CBC news anchor, working in that role for over 15 years. I mentioned earlier on talking about interview techniques by friend Jim Nunn, whom I knew from St. Vaxen. And uh, um, I remember saying to Jimmy one time, I said that, you know, the difference between his situation, he's on TV. I said, people watch the sitcom, the uh, soaps in the afternoon, the sitcoms in the evening, and your one-hour show is in the middle of that. So people relate to you, in a sense, the way they relate to other people on television. And there's another, I think there's, there's another thing there, that there is a, for want of a more useful uh, description, a celebrity factor there. And they, they don't have that same feeling about me. When you, when you run into those people that for the first time and you're having a conversation with them, they're not reacting to you as if you happen to be somebody who's shooting a movie or a TV series and gee, isn't it nice to see Don Connolly because I saw him in a movie last year or I saw him in a TV series I really liked. That's not it. Is that because since you're on the radio, you're only just a voice? There's not really a person, a, a human being behind that voice. That's it. That, yeah. uh, uh, no, I wouldn't put it that way. No face attached to it, but a, very much a person attached to it. Did you ever have an opportunity or even a desire to switch over to TV? There, I, I had a little, um, Tom Murphy and Amy Smith and I split a little television show called At the Table where we did interview shows for a period of time. Um, that was very late in the game and only for a couple of years. We did probably, I did probably a total of maybe 20 over three years, maybe. But there were a number of factors. Uh, n- there was never really there was never a job in TV here that I really said that would be interesting. Uh, and B and or maybe A, the idea that you should become so easily identifiable that you that you should um, that every that if you did it for a period of time, virtually everybody that you pass in the street would have seen your face. Uh, that held no charm for me. Like, I think of, like virtually nobody, nobody ever in all those years we were doing that ever came over and said, you're not kindly on the radio, you know? So when I'm sitting on the lawn of the old library, you know, when the kids were small, um, there was never the self-consciousness which would come with feeling that you're being watched or there was never any kind of having to say, okay, can you just behave for a second? I'm going to talk to Michael here for a few minutes about radio or any of that kind of stuff. And and part of that came out of my experience with Tremaine early on because I remember, and here's my recollection, which is obviously not scientific, 
But when we would go anywhere, like out to grab a bite or you go someplace in public, like everybody knew his face. Everybody. So regardless of being recognized in the street, I do know that there were plenty of people whose lives and whose daily routines that you were a big part of. Did that knowledge ever become daunting? No, I, I embraced it. Um, and I have to be careful not to be too disingenuous here. I don't think that somebody without any ego at all does what I did for as long as I did. That'd be just too cute. And, and in, in the most fundamental human psychological profile, I mean, with any normal person on the spectrum of, you know, doesn't every, wouldn't you prefer to be liked than disliked? You know, wouldn't you like to think people like you? And the fact that you run into people over a period of time who tell you that they like your work and your work in this particular case includes a lot of you. So, I mean, to, to, to what, you know, what's the bad part about people telling you, you know, that you were really helpful to them in just passing the time from going from Arasag to Burnside Industrial Park or, or any other situation, that, you know, that affection. So what's it like on the flip side then? Like, if you come across people who really just don't care for your input on the show... Or the show itself. I, I had lived enough life to know that everybody's not going to like you, you know. And if you expose yourself to that many more people, there are going to be that many more people who don't like you very much. People who like the show will stop you and say they like the show. People who don't like the show, this is Nova Scotia. People are polite. They don't seek out an opportunity. Uh, it, it's. I think it's. There, there are two levels. I mean, there are people who whose criticism of me would be on the basis of they thought I wasn't doing the kind of job that they wanted, and they're just people who just want to clear your eyes, you know, whatever. So uh, since you started in newspapers, was it a natural step for you to go over to radio? Like, were you always one who was okay getting a little bit closer to the spotlight? One of the things that I would have described myself as a young man... Um, as a little shy, you know, like, which is weird because, I mean, I think of myself growing up, I was like the captain of the hockey team and I was on the student, you know, I was that yeah. kind of guy, you know, uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> Richie Cunningham, as my brothers used to say, you know, kind of goody two-shoes kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> the nature of the work, particularly the nature of, the work of having to get out but also have people coming into the studio, et cetera, and so on. That the capacity to um, be easier with complete strangers, that certainly the, the work has impacted that. Like most other normal people, the idea of public speaking, you know, getting up in front of 500 people or whatever, is, is for many people one of the most daunting prospects. Um, and I can remember as a child... And I mean a little tiny boy at the KFC Hall in Bathurst. And I was picked by, amongst other kids from Sacred Heart School, to do a speech from a little contest within the school. And I, I couldn't have been seven or eight. 
And I went, my mother and father were there. My grandfather, who was a lifelong politician, therefore had done a gazillion speeches. My grandmother, my grandfather, my mother and father were there. And I couldn't get through it. At, at some point, I just completely, utterly froze, you know. Uh, and I remember, that I can still feel how I felt in that moment, you know, as a result, you know. And I had done, of necessity, I had done some emceeing of things at university once in a while, but I mean, it was just, I ended up getting hooked into these things. Um, I said the trigger, it's so weird, you know, you get up here in the morning and I said, I'm interviewing somebody and you know roughly from the ratings how many thousand people are listening. And I said, that, like, that doesn't even occur to me. It doesn't, like, doesn't feature in my thinking about this at all, zero. I said, the idea of going to a Chamber of Commerce meeting and talking to somebody about public broadcasting for 20 minutes just makes me want to throw up. Yeah. And Trigger said, there's a way around that. He said, every time somebody asks you for the next five years, it doesn't matter what it is, go to MC a thing over at the uh, at a political meeting, whatever it is, say yes every single solitary time. So, I mean, this would have been obviously at the end of your career, but that's not unlike the speech you gave in front of thousands of people at your retirement. Yeah, but, but it's interesting you should say it because I could think of when I was retired, the, the day of the retirement, needless to say, thought about it a lot, made a lot of notes. And in this situation, of all the situations, just trust yourself. You've thought about it enough. If I had locked myself into a speech which I had prepared, it probably wouldn't have reflected the mood in the room or the fact there was many people there, etc. And so when I spoke, I literally didn't have a word written down. You know, by that stage of the game, I trusted myself enough to say, okay, look, you know what this occasion's about. You know, you have a pretty good idea what you want to say. So trust yourself, it'll be okay. So how did it feel for you when you actually decided it was time to retire? Um, the reaction to my leaving, the period leading up the last month or so, you know, the degree to which it was about me, and I was at pains to point out that in fact so much of that reaction, the end of my career. I said, I gave voice to the work of hundreds of people over those 43 years. Like, I got way more of the glory that I deserved if you looked at the bulk of the work being done by everybody else. And I said, the retirement party, you know, it was astonishing. Yeah. Um, between a clean cut, and it was off your mind, and you didn't think about it the next day whatsoever, to maybe I should just go back and check and see how they're doing because I want to make sure they're doing a good job. Between those two things, where did you kind of fall? Absolutely with the former. Oh, uh, yeah. You were, no, no. Uh, well, there's a, there's a couple of things there. I mean, I was going to leave in 19... Um, I was going to leave in 2016, which would make 40 years. And I'm not talking about conscious planning. I'm just talking about sort of thinking about it. I'm going like that. And still, I mean, I could have left before that. I mean, I was pensionable a couple of years before that. So I said, okay, 40 is a nice round number. So I'll, I'll do 40. Then in 2015, I fell down those stairs uh, out there and broke a whole lot of stuff missed three months of work and in the process of getting fixed they found two cancers oversimplify a bladder cancer and a thyroid cancer so I missed three months in the fall and then began uh, I would for two thyroid operations I missed two weeks with one two weeks with the other the bladder things so you have to leave a little early there were doctor's appointments etc and so on 
So I'm going, okay, um, which, well, went into 2016. I'm going like, you know, I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to fade away. I don't want to sort of stumble out of here, you know. I'm going to say, okay, look, the bladder cancer treatments continued during this period of time, but my shoulder and my back and everything else had healed. But I said, I'm going to go back so that you're not, like it was the year before I fell. That was basically, when I fell out there, I had never in, that would have been 38 years, never one time got up in the morning and dialed the studio and said, I'm too sick, too tired, too hungover, or whatever, to show up. No, I'd gone in and left at 9 o'clock right away. I certainly missed days because I was sick or whatever, but I never called in and said, I can't go. And that was a point, I didn't talk about that very much, but it was a point of pride for me. The first time I did that is when I was fucking broken. When it got to be the end of January in 2018, not only had I done that, but I had been thinking about it like from 40, so it was like a couple of years in. Yeah. So it, was, it wasn't like, okay, I'm tired now. I'm going to go and tell them I'm going to be gone in a month. Retirement these days doesn't really seem to be so much of an on-off switch. It seems like it's becoming a bit more of a transition phase but for your work at the cbc that doesn't quite seem as practical mm-hmm. no, i mean i had a discussion with nimbus about whether i could write a book uh you know i've given a couple of speeches um i hosted a bunch of choral concerts over uh, christmas I'm telling you one thing, I don't want a job, that's for sure. You know, is, is there something that I could do that I could do part-time that could be of interest to me, which might be helpful, you know, healthy for me to go out and do? Probably, but I mean, I, I don't, I'm certainly not seeking it. And, and, and you know, I mean, it's, uh, I'd rather be richer, better looking and younger, but then again, you know, then there's not a job that's going to fix any of those things. Well, some of them are harder than others, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are impossible. Well, Don, it's about that time to wrap up. So, once again, thank you so much for sitting down with me and sharing some insight. You're quite welcome, Michael. The previous episode, I spoke with Anna Sampson, who got right into her architecture career just after high school. This time, you might make the case that Don's career didn't truly begin until he was in his 60s. Although Don's path doesn't quite exist today in the same form, the principles still hold true. I've mentioned before that if you're not quite sure what you want to do, then just do something until that path unveils itself. In my fourth episode, that something was tree planting. This time, it happens to be newspapers and radio. And if you have a particular weakness that you're trying to overcome, well, a lesson from Don Tremaine tested by Don Connolly, and trademarked by Nike, is to just do it. Do you want to get better at public speaking? Then speak in public more often. Do you want to write better? Then write more often. Just because the advice is simple does not make it any less valuable. Although it hasn't been a major theme of any episode of mine just yet, Don's priority, it seems, has always been children, and more broadly speaking, lifestyle. There's plenty of people out there who this should resonate with. They're just not so driven by career progression. In 2019, it's kind of an unpopular opinion to say, you know what, I really just don't care about my job that much. 
at least compared to my family, friends, and hobbies. But in this capitalist age of hyper-career progression, to say you're not going for that next promotion seems downright strange. But if you're one of those people, then take some solace in knowing that these ideals aren't uncommon or brand new. Although they might have gotten you labeled a communist in the 60s. So where to now? As my irregularly spaced season one comes to a close, all that's left is a fitting bow to wrap around it. So the next time you hear from me, it will be a bit different. For starters, I'll be more on the receiving end of the questions. And for some of you, you'll be hearing a familiar voice speaking to me. That voice will be that of Charles Schwinn. As I've referenced before, Charles has a ridiculous amount of radio experience himself on both the front and back ends of the industry. It'll be a slightly different episode, and I'm looking forward to it. So if you want to hear the major takeaways and lessons from over 30 hours of discussion, then tune in next time on my Season 1 finale of How To.